Now, first of all, note in the letter itself, uh, he's giving this summation uh, of the letter, and he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. These are the believing ones. They're not believing ones in something that's uh, just not known to them. It's particular, the name of the Son of God. It's not the use of the name here in the, the context of just saying, you know the name Jesus, and because you've heard the name Jesus, and the name Jesus has been spoken to you, uh, then, you know, that's what we're talking about here. The name of the Son of God is a reference to something very particular. And when he's talking about the name of Jesus, he adds that phrase, of the Son of God. So, He's spoken very clearly in this letter, and of course, in his gospel, he speaks very clear, clearly about the deity of Jesus. Jesus is, or deity, um, good southerner says deity, uh, the probably more uh, formal pronunciation would be deity. But either way, whatever you understand, I say deity most of the time, um, He's speaking here very clearly about the deity of the Son of God, and this is in his letter as well. You're believing that Jesus is the very Son of God. What he further opens to them in this letter is that the name of the Son of God goes along with his deity, his, his person, who he is in his human nature, who he is in his work. He unfolds the idea of him being an advocate and him being the propitiation for our sins, the substitutionary atonement. He, he spends time in his letter unfolding those things just as he does in his gospel. And this is a summation of believing in the name of the Son of God is a summation of a whole host of biblical theological ideas. So it's not just enough to say, well, I believe Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? Who is he? What did he do? All those things are encompassed in what John is writing. Now, my purpose is not to unfold all of that, but to give you this morning an understanding that that phrase has more to it than just calling out the name of Jesus. But he goes on and he says, So that, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. To know that you have eternal life is assurance. It's one of the first forms of assurance that we talked about several weeks ago. This is what Jesus, one of his promises is to those who believe in him when we see it in the Gospels. Those who believe in his name will inherit eternal life. So this promise of eternal life is also wrapped up in the doctrine of assurance. And to be able to know that you have eternal life, this is a part of what it means to believe in the name of the Son of God. So often when the church takes that away from people, it's actually taking away major portions of the promises of the gospel. If God has promised eternal life, and he's promised that we may know we can have it, 
then why would you want to take the doctrine of assurance away from people when there's evidence scripturally that it's something that is given to them? I'll give you another example of this too. We talked about from the confession that the confession gives a sense in which a person may be a true believer yet not have full assurance. Full assurance is something to be attained. It is there for us as believers, yet there are times that we may not be able to have that full assurance in our own minds. Well, what, what is something that keeps us steady in that? And this is kind of where we ended last week, but look at 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue. So don't just talk about love. It's not just something coming out of our mouths. You can say I love you to somebody and not really think about what you're saying and not really think about what that means. You're just saying some words. Or you can act in ways that you're, you, know, you think you're loving somebody but you're really not. But here he's talking specifically about the tongue and the words. He says, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. If we're going to love people, we love them in the truth. Now this goes with the whole idea of the name of the Son of God. What truth are we loving them in? And when we truly love them in the whole of the gospel, we've been shown grace We're learning how to show grace to others. We've been shown forgiveness. We're learning how to show forgiveness to others. We've been shown that there are some people that you need to stay away from, and so you learn to just stay away from them because they're only going to cause frustration and anger. So we love them by staying away from them. Okay? If you, you know... There's actions that go along with these things. If you love them in the truth, you're also loving them in deed. It's following that way. It's not just love from the mouth. It's love that's built in the truth that works its way out in our deeds. All right? Well, he goes forward. We will know by this, if we're loving people in the truth and in deed, that we are of the truth. All right, so there's an element here, number one. If you and I do not love the truth of God and who He is and what He has done in the sending of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if we do not love that truth, then we're learning something about ourselves. If we do not love that truth and seek and strive against the deeds of the flesh and strive in the deeds of the fruit of the Spirit, then we're saying something about ourselves. That's not talking about perfection. It's talking about what's your aim? What's your real serious desire? Okay? This is... We will know by this that we are of the truth. 
If you love the truth, you love others in the truth, and your deeds show that truth, then it shows that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. Assurance does have a very stable foundation to it. It's founded in the whole of the truth of God's Word. One place that we often lack assurance is because we're lacking to spend time feeding our souls in the Word of God. I can't gain assurance in the things of God and the salvation of God if I'm not spending time feeding my soul in that very truth. Okay? That, that's, that's just about as plain as you can put some of that, right? The person who's not going to spend time in God's Word on a regular basis, you may be a believer, but you will be in a weakened state consistently. Okay? So he goes forward and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. Well, sometimes we don't spend time in the Word of God like we should. Sometimes we don't react to someone like we should. Sometimes we don't do something proactive that we should. And our heart begins to condemn us because there is a lack of truth there. Lack of truth being continually put in. A lack of truth that's coming out. Because there's not perfection in the whole of our bodies. Well, sometimes our, our heart will begin to condemn us. We'll begin to question, am I really a believer? Am I really one of God's children? Have I really been adopted in the family? Because if I have, why, why did I act that way? Why is it this sin that I'm continually dealing with? Our heart's going to condemn us. Well, what's the hope in that? He says, thankfully... For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. The doctrine of assurance is founded in the very being of God. There are times our heart condemns us because we are struggling. There are genuine, true times in any believer's life that we will struggle to have some assurance of salvation. It's very rare that... a a genuine believer goes through their whole life and never has a moment of struggling with assurance. That's very rare. Now, I've spoken to a person here or there that says that was true for them. They were in their uh, elderly years, and they said that was true for them. And I said, hallelujah, brother, sister, amen. I'm glad you were able to get this far in your life and never have any moment of, of doubt of your own assurance. But for most believers, that, that's rare. So when there are these times that our heart condemns us because we're not in truth living in the truth of the gospel, that our deeds don't flow that way, well, thankfully, thankfully, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. 
This is why the doctrine of assurance is built on the very doctrine of God and it's a Trinitarian doctrine. And last week we ended at that place in the understanding that this is a, a Trinitarian doctrine. Thomas Goodwin says, Assurance is not a stone in the foundation or the key of the arch, but a decorative finial atop the roof. You remember that's what we kind of ended with last week. Which lends a pleasant symmetry to the whole building. We may not have that assurance, but when we don't have that assurance, our full assurance is not based on our feelings. Now that doesn't mean that we don't need to take some time dealing with certain sins in our lives not to stop a moment and really consider what's going on with our own hearts and souls. There's sometimes there's serious enough sin that we need to take a real pause and ask ourselves some serious questions. Yet at the same time, we have to be careful not to scare everybody out of assurance. Because the doctrine of assurance is built in the very doctrine of God and it's this kind of pinnacle top piece on the house. The doctrine of assurance is not what we start with first. The doctrine of God is what we start with first through the scripture. We said last week that the doctrine of assurance in the Trinity is built on the eternal decree. Um, Turn back to Matthew chapter 19. Here the Lord Jesus is being asked a question by the rich young ruler about obtaining eternal life. And Jesus says to him in Matthew 19 verse 17 why are you asking me about what is good there is only one who is good but if you wish to enter into life keep the commandments then he said to him which ones and Jesus said you shall not commit murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself the young man said to him all these things I have kept what am I still lacking Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus knew that this young man's assurance was built in his possessions. This is where this young man had his assurance. And he's saying it needs to be built on God. If you Now, this is not a, a lesson as some people have put it out there, you know, to be a real genuine Christian, every Christian has to sell everything they have. That's not the practical application here. The teaching here, though, is that for this particular individual, all of his assurance was sewed up in his possessions. He could think about living the commandments in a particular way, but when it came to being questioned about the first table of the law, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, would he be willing to trust God in giving away, selling his possessions, and only solely following God? Well, the answer for this rich young ruler was no, because he went away very saddened. 
because that's where his assurance was. It was not in the very being of God. It was not in the context of the very being of God. But notice here what the question is from the rich young ruler. What good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? This eternal decree is ultimately about eternal life. If we look at the decree, not just in the building up of several blocks, but in its, its end capacity, the decree concerning salvation is about eternal life. Who will be in the kingdom of heaven eternally? That's the question. So the rich young ruler is questioning that situation. Well, it's only upon God's eternal decree that that's founded. If anyone has eternal life and will be in the kingdom of heaven eternally, it's only founded upon the eternal decree itself. Not only does God know it, He's planned it. For Him to know that it will happen means that He has to be sure that it will happen, and therefore His knowledge is built on the fact of what? He planned it. And thankfully he did, because left to ourselves, none of us would choose God because of depravity, right? If we understand the doctrine of sin. So the whole idea of the eternal decree in, in the sense of salvation and really everything being worked out in all of time, space, and history is about the kingdom of heaven. Who will be with God? It's not that the question was bad. It was the right question. He just didn't want to hear the answer was in God because he needed to be willing to love the Lord his God with all his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength. He could work out adultery and murder and all those things, at least in his mind, right? He thought he had anyway. He thought, look, I've done these things, but, but how do I obtain eternal life? And Jesus is saying, you're not trusting in God. You're still trusting in yourselves because your possessions, that's your assurance. The whole idea of eternal life is something that in its very nature, you see the idea, the word is eternal life, right? Eternal. That's the question. And that's only founded in the eternal decree. Apart from the eternal decree, there's no hope of anyone being in the kingdom of heaven. So all of the doctrine of assurance is founded upon the eternal decree. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. That puts the doctrine of assurance as we will see it and know it and teach it in a different category than what it's seen in other evangelical churches. Because other evangelical churches talk a lot about things called free will, God's foreknowledge as he, he saw down through time, who would choose him. So what is the basis of that kind of assurance? If you're going to say you can have full assurance when it's based on free will, salvation is based on free will, or if you're going to say you can have assurance and it's, it's based on God's foreknowledge that he saw down through time, who would choose him, then ultimately you're saying your assurance is man-based. It's starting with the doctrine of man. 
But the scripture doesn't teach that because God didn't leave the, the whole essence of eternal life, the promise of eternal life in the hands of humans. I'll be politically correct. I won't use the word man because there's ladies in the room. He didn't leave it in the hands of humans. He didn't look down through time and go, oh, they'll be good enough to choose me. He didn't look down through time and say, you know what? Depravity didn't quite affect those individuals the way it did some of these others, and they're going to choose me. If the doctrine of depravity is true in its full essence, that sinners are dead in their sins and their trespasses, then it took God doing a work in grace to choose those who would believe in him. He had to do the work first. So you have eternal life. It makes logical sense. It's based on the eternal decree. Secondly, it's based on the sons, Jesus, the sons' active and passive obedience. Um, the confession notes this in the chapter on assurance in the phrase blood and righteousness of Christ, um, founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians. I'm, I'm just giving you a verse or two here. There, there's so many things we could say. Paul's letters are, are full of this kind of language. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 20, Paul makes an appeal, a plea. He makes this appeal to be reconciled to God. Reconciliation means that there's enmity between two parties. You don't need reconciliation unless both parties have an issue. And we have that between God and man. There's not just one issue. God is not the only one of the issue. Man is not the only one of the issue. God has an issue because he is holy. And all that is in him is about righteousness. It's not just about law and morality. The, the righteousness of God is actually more than something we can even fathom. It's, it would blow our mind to think about the righteousness of God. We tend to think about righteousness and moral standards. But we're talking about a purity that goes far beyond that. Just in the, it's greater than moral standards. I'm going to say some more about that when I, I preach on the Olivet Discourse when I come to the kingdom of heaven. But anyway, you have to recognize there is a God who is righteous and holy. And anything that is unholy, he is against. Not just it is against him, but he is against it. We are unholy sinners. And not only is God against us, but we are against him. 
So between these two parties, there needs to be reconciliation. And how does the reconciliation come? Paul sums it up in this verse 21. A lot more could be said, but he said, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our assurance is based on the Son's active and passive obedience. What did the Son do in in His active obedience? Now, when I ask that question, sometimes people get that confused, okay? So if you give the wrong answer, it's okay. We're just learning together. But, But what did Christ do in His active obedience? All right, he lived a perfect life. He obeyed the law. All right? Um, that's his active obedience. He came and lived a perfect life. All right? And so, what would his passive obedience be? He went to the cross. He submitted himself to that. Now, there's a lot more to say about those things, but you're, you're getting the gist of it. Yes? I'm sorry, say it again. And who came to who? Yeah, in his passive obedience, he submitted to it and willingly went through it. And our sin was put on to him. And his righteousness is put on to those who are believer or who will believe. It's put on to their account. But, yes. But it's mainly the idea, the passive idea of his submission. He submitted to the will of God that he would be the one to go and die a sinner's death. That's the main overarching idea. Yeah, historically, the idea of, of Christ's passion is his suffering, okay? And most of the time, people get that confused when they think about Christ's passion. They think about him being a passionate person who went and tossed tables around in the temple. Um, that's, when you hear historically about the passion of Christ, it's about his suffering. That's why uh, uh, some churches will recognize, and especially the, the Catholic Church will recognize that the the week of his passion. Okay, well, that's dealing with leading up to the week or leading up to his death and burial and resurrection. So the passive obedience uh, is him submitting to the will of the Father. Actively, he lived a perfect life, never breaking the law of God. Passively, he submitted to the will of the Father in being Or as it's put here, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Now that's him being the substitutionary atoner. He stood in our place, the place of those that God had deemed to save and by covenant would save them. Um. This idea of this being wrapped up in the covenant 
is not only a New Testament concept. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 5. We have God the Father working this out by covenant and this being a part of the promise of the covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 22, through the prophet, God is saying, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. The eternal decree of the oceans is the same in the context of the eternal decree of God's salvation. God has put a boundary to the seas, and so therefore God is the one who has put a boundary in the context of salvation. And he's put that boundary there through the Son, the very work of the Son, that he would be sent, the one who had no sin or knew no sin, so that he might become the sacrifice, he would stand in our behalf. And furthermore, this is a representation of what the Spirit would do. The Spirit's implementation, and in one sense, his certification of the very eternal decree. Um, when you think about, um, you know, we've, we've been looking at John 17, and you think about the promise that Jesus gives in earlier chapters of the Spirit and what he will do as the comforter. What would, what would the Spirit be comforting people in? If it were not one aspect of that, were not assurance of salvation. If the Spirit is sent to regenerate a dead soul and bring it to life, if the Spirit, if the Spirit is convicting even the believer of their own sin to continue to be a repenting repenter, if the Spirit is illumining the truth of God's Word to us that we would continue to seek to live God's Word in deed and truth, well, part of the aspect of the comforting work of the Spirit is to give assurance to the soul of the believer. Why else would he be called a comforter? So when you're building this doctrine, you're building it off of the doctrine of God and you're building it off of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Turn back to 2 Corinthians If God can put the boundary to the seas in eternal decree, He's put the boundary in the context of the whole of salvation. If He sent His Son and His Son willingly did the work, the Son who knew no sin, if He came, it became sin on our behalf, and the Spirit was promised as a comforter, when 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us 
and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Yes. Uh, what did I say? I'm sorry. Second Corinthians chapter 1, I apologize. If I said 1 Corinthians, I apologize. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Is everybody there now? Okay, sorry. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. This is the very work of the Spirit, not only the implementation of salvation in the sense of applying it, but the very certification of salvation. One Baptist writer some years ago said, in the Reformed doctrine, assurance is grounded in the adequacy of the work of Christ, in the testimony of the Holy Spirit, and in the persistent purpose of God. So he's inverted the decree, the work of Christ, and the work of the Spirit. He's inverted that and worked it out from Spirit to Son to God. But he's still giving you that same element. There's a pledge here. The pledge comes through the Spirit. The Spirit sealed us. We've been given the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. What is, what is Paul's idea there with, with meaning that there's a pledge? Down payment for a future final purchase. Yeah. Yeah, there's, the down payment's already ma- been made for this future final purpose. And, and sometimes when we think of down payment, we think of that in a way as though a down payment could still be forfeited. But when you're looking at the eternal decree and you're looking at the very work of the Son, this is not going to be forfeited. There can be no foreclosure. There can be no problem with the down payment because God is immutable. And that goes to the eternal decree, the very nature of it, doesn't it? The very being of God, God is unchanging. Um, Look at Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, you have the whole unfolding of God the Father in the eternal decree and, and predestination that we were chose in Him or chose in Christ before the foundation of the word, world, verse 4, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us. Um, it goes down to explain uh, even the context of the very work of the Son. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And Paul unfolds, this is a, a mystery being unfolded to us. The very will of God worked out through His Son. It was purposed through Him. It was a kind intention of His will. And then later in verse 13, He says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. This Trinitarian work is sealed up in the very work of the Spirit. This is why it goes back to even looking at our our genuine, real desires and then the outworking of our lives. The Spirit dealing with our souls, not only in belief, not only in repentance of sin, but even in the genuine desire for the love of God's truth. And in the context of actually continuing desiring to follow that, obey it, and live it out. The assurance is Trinitarian in its very nature. And so therefore, although we may have moments in our own hearts of waffling, our actual assurance is never in a state of flux because it's based in the very being of God, from His eternal decree to the work of the Son to the very outworking and inworking of the Spirit. Does that help in some ways? All right, are there any comments or questions before we, we move forward? Yet, it really does make it all the more important for us, though, to feed ourselves with these truths from the Word. Because if I'm feeding myself in the Word, then the Spirit of God always accompanies the Word according to the will of God. So if, if I'm not doing that, at the times that I'm not doing that, and if I'm doing that at great length, I'm going to look at certain portions of my life and I'm going to have real, genuine struggles. And maybe rightly so. But maybe it's because I'm not feeding myself appropriately that I could gain these things by the very work of the Spirit. Yes? And if you're only, if you're only uh, have input from your own flesh or from bad spirit, what, where are you? You're going all sorts of times and yeah. Now, that's, yes, that's true. And that's not to say there have been Christians, some of you have heard of... Uh, uh, John Newton he had serious bouts of, with assurance of salvation um, his friends did not doubt his salvation but he did on multiple multiple occasions at great length yes yeah and his friends were the ones encouraging him as well. He was another one. Yes. I'm just saying, Brandon, when you mentioned about the Holy Spirit, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. It's not a subsequent thing. At the moment we're saved. Yes. Yes, that's one of the instantaneous works in the doctrine of salvation. Give my 
Okay? Well, I think we'll just sum up with this thought. We need to note here that from the perspective of the being of God, the doctrine of assurance of salvation is infallible. Uh, Because God is immutable, the doctrine itself is infallible. God knows who are His. He will not lose one of them. And He has their assurance in His hands, even when in their own hearts there may be struggle or some state of flux. There's never that in God. And we'll we'll end there because we've run out of time. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful once again for us to think for just a moment about your grace and mercy to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus, according to your eternal decree. We give thanks to you for the very work of the Spirit and ask that you would continue to work in us, that we would be mindful of these truths. Lord, we are a weak people in many ways. Some of us think too highly of ourselves, more highly than we ought to, and we're not sober-minded on certain times and days. Some of us live in a constant state of struggle as to whether or not we are saved. Some of us in the room may think little of salvation. Lord, I pray you would give us hearts to be honest about our condition. But it would be through your word and your truth that we would find the answers and not in our own minds and flesh. Give us strength according to your word that we would seek your truth by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in the name of your Son we pray these things. Amen.